Let's go in Matthew chapter 6. In our Bibles, Matthew chapter 6, we'll begin to read there in verses 5, and we'll go through verse 8. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. The Bible says, and this is from the lips of Jesus, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Notice the purpose here, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases or vain or empty repetitions As the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you have need of before you ask him. We're going to talk this morning about secret prayers. And the driving thought of this message, I'll just give it up, give it to you up front, is that secret, personal, spiritual preparation will prepare us For the battles that we face. Have you ever looked back on those days. To where it seemed like everything went wrong. It was one of those Job type of days. And then from that day that everything began to go wrong. It leads you to the the circumstance that you're in right now. And you can point back to the day. That it seemed like it got the ball rolling to the present circumstance that you're in right now. This is truth, but every single one of us wakes up every morning not knowing what a day will bring forth. Is that not right? That's what Jesus says further on in chapter 6, when he says, don't worry about tomorrow, for sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. Jesus is saying, every day that you get up, you have no idea on how it's going to turn out. So that's a great encouraging way to begin the sermon, isn't it? But notice, Jesus is driving his followers to say, the source of power, the source of preparation, is not necessarily the big worship gathering, or when the band plays, or when everybody gathers together in the Sunday school class. And that person who seems to know every big word in the King James Bible prays those beautiful sounding prayers. Jesus is saying, go to God and go there alone by yourself. Because it's in those quiet moments, in those quiet times that we truly get to know who God is. And I'm just going to be very honest. They, they taught us in preaching. They said, don't ever say I'm being honest because when you say you're being honest, you're assuming that you're not being honest the rest of the time when you're not saying, I'm going to be honest, all right? But with that being said, let me be honest. Man, prayer in our day and time in this 21st century thing called American culture, the spiritual discipline of prayer for me is very difficult. I am task-driven. 
I am task-oriented. I love people. I love hanging out with people. But it's kind of like my, my objective is to say, okay, what is the goal? All right, let's hang out, but let's hang out in, in connection with accomplishing the goal. And some of you say, I know people like that and I can't stand them. All right? I mean, we, we all have so much to do. But there is something that Jesus points us to here at the beginning of chapter 6 to say it is an absolute necessity to live a not just a time of prayer before you go to bed, but to live in such a way that you are in constant communion with God, constant fellowship with Him. And I just want to warn us right out of the gate that pride, Jesus compares to pride, the thing that God resists, the thing that brings most people to hell who will go to hell. Pride is the thing that is sometimes so camouflageable that we, and that's not even a word, but I just made it up. It, it is, it is so insidious. It is so sneaky that pride can be pasted across the walls of the home of our lives and we not even know it. Notice notice how Jesus begins. If you have your worship guide, we're just going to walk through the text like we try to do every Sunday morning. We, we open God's Word, we pick the passage, and we just walk through it because the power is not on how creative Jeff is with his outlines. The power is in the Word of God. Alright? So we're just going to start to walk there through these verses. And you see there, in beginning in chapter 6 in verse 5, the key to secret prayer is this jesus assumes that his followers will have prayer as a big part of their life notice what he says and if you pray is that what the text reads it says and what help me out church and when you pray newsflash there is a jonathan edwards sermon um, that he was the guy who wrote sinners in the hands of an angry god and Jonathan Edwards' sermons were not all like sinners in the hands of an angry God. Uh, he has, I mean, just an absolutely amazing theological mind that God gave him wisdom to write all these things. But one of his sermons that just, I mean, it was just like, it hit me between the eyes several years ago. You know what the title of the sermon was? Here it is. Hypocrites deficient in the duty of prayer. Hypocrites deficient in not just prayer, but in the duty of prayer. And man, I was in seminary trying to learn God's word, learn how to communicate, and I was even taking a class on Jonathan Edwards. We had to read, um, one of the, one of the assignments was to read a thousand pages of Edwards, and it's like four, number four font. So if I end up getting glasses one day, I'll, I'll, I'll blame the professor from that class. So, man, just going through this stuff, it was like the Lord said, stop. Stop. Are you deficient in the duty of prayer? And the answer was, yes. Newsflash once again. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but prayer, and I'm not talking about, we'll get into this a little bit more in the message and we'll make people mad, I'm sure. But we're not talking about the bedtime prayers that we teach our children. We're talking about a spirit and an attitude of wherever I am, I am in fellowship with and praying to God. If that doesn't characterize your life, 
you're a hypocrite. Notice what Jesus has to say, not Jonathan Edwards, about hypocrites. He says that you must not be like the hypocrites when you pray. So, so before we even unpack that, Jesus is assuming that we live a life of prayer. Now, if you don't know someone, if you're uncomfortable with someone, let's, let's just go for those of you that understand awkward humor. Someone that you don't really know and they make you nervous for a reason that you can't pinpoint. You know what I'm saying? Ladies, my, my, my mom has, has helped me with this. She says, Jeffrey, now listen, when you get married one day and your wife has these feelings, she can't exactly explain to you why this person is weird or strange. You need to listen to that. And, and being raised by my mom, she's a wise woman, she's a godly woman, she loves Jesus. It's very interesting that if you've noticed within marriages, this is not, you know, some guys have the sense too, some ladies don't have it so much, but, but a lot of times the, the ladies, you can, you can sense something about somebody else and you warn your husband about it. I mean, if you've listened to Dave Ramsey at all, you know, the Financial Peace University, the, the act your, uh, what is it, act your wage guy, right? Like, like in other words, if you're, if you're just starting out, if you're just starting out, like right out of college, you've got 30 grand in college debt, you know, don't, you know, and you're starting out like, like just a, a minimum wage job, don't, don't go buy the brand new Harley. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just, just that type of, he gives that type of, uh, of biblical advice. But he speaks about that too. Now think about sometimes person that you just, you just, they unnerve you. I think the reason why some of us don't go to God is because we have a false perception of him. Even the thought of the idea of the person of God makes us nervous. So sometimes when we, when we get down to pray, we, we think we have to open up Shakespeare as if we're going to impress God with our bad to the bone vocab. Jesus says, first off, it's assumed. It is assumed. In other words, it is totally insane to say that I am a follower of Jesus, but prayer is not a part of my life. If prayer is not an attitude of prayer, communion and fellowship with God, it begs the question, regardless of how long you've been a member here or another church, do you know God in a personal relationship? Are we okay? Do you know God? Andrew Murray, the great preacher, said this, the man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelization in history. Evangelizing simply meaning sharing the gospel with other people. So regular prayers assume, but not only that, Jesus points out in verse 5 as well, don't use prayer as a cover for self-advancement. Notice what he says the hypocrites do. For they love to stand. They love. Who are we to love? We're to love our neighbor as ourself. And we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But notice what Jesus says hypocrites love. He says they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Now notice what's the purpose that they made what? Be seen. By other people, be be seen by other people. Jesus is exposing prayer that is being used to advance 
ourselves. Now, as we mentioned last week in verses 1 through 4, with Jesus' similar comments on giving, we live in a different culture now than when Jesus was teaching to his followers. Today, people don't really want you to be out there with your quote-unquote religion, do they? In fact, in culture today, for you to advance, they say you need to just kind of keep your faith in the closet. They'll use words like this in the public square. This is the government or this is the public square, this is politics. But faith is a personal thing. Well, if Jesus is who he said he was, and if he saved me and transformed my life, then that means Jesus not just informs how I worship on Sunday morning, but he informs every area of our life. That means how we treat one another. That means the issues that matter to us in life. And not only that, Jesus is saying here in verse 5 that hypocrites simply love the spotlight. They love it. Now, some of us are like, exactly right. Boy, if we had somebody who came to Rocky Mount Baptist Church and they wanted that mic and they wanted to lead in the prayer and it was just like they had that prayer had them written all over it. Have you ever been around someone and it seems like they're doing what they're doing so that everybody else will notice how good they are at what they're doing? They're not saying it like they're not saying, hey, I'm awesome. And just to let you guys know, I'm 10, 10 reasons why I'm better than you. They don't say that, but it seems like pride just oozes out of everything that they do. Jesus is saying that a hypocrite loves the spotlight. And most of us would say, absolutely. And that type of pride, I don't even want to be around it. But there is a danger when we read the words of Jesus that we go to the extreme. For example... When we focus on the extreme sins, quote-unquote, in Scripture, we may gloss over what God needs to tell us. And it's like this. In Luke chapter 18, do you remember the story of the tax collector who went into the temple and he was so broken about his sin he wouldn't even look up to God and he just beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then do some of you who've read your Bibles closely, do you remember what the Pharisee did when he went in? He looked and his prayer was, God, I thank you I'm not like that guy. And we're like, that's absolutely right, man. That guy is wrong. He's full of pride. Jesus was right to say that he went away condemned. And the repentant tax collector went away justified. And boy, it is. The KKK is terrible, right? The Nazis were bad. Enron and those those rich executives who ripped off people for, I mean, all of these people for their retirement accounts where they worked their whole lives and now they end up penniless except for Social Security. That is horrific. I mean, we, we, we think of sins like, you know, child molestation and things along that line. But there is something called pride. And if you and I are not careful, when we see wickedness in the world, when we see, like Jesus is pointing here, spiritual hypocrisy to where people do what they do, not for God, they do it in the name of God, but they do it to get praise from others, there is the temptation for us to so, please track with me on this, to so focus upon how they're wrong that we don't ask God to search our hearts. And it is very, very possible that when we focus on these extreme sins, we lose sight of where we are with God. What did Satan use to try to tempt Jesus to get him to fall? 
Now, this is a deep thought that a lot of us gloss over very often. When Satan tempted Jesus in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is the Son of God. He, he is the man. Satan, the greatest tempter. Now, wouldn't you say that is the toughest assignment Satan had ever given to himself? I mean, it's one thing to mess around with you and I. I mean, some of us, it doesn't even take much for us to stumble. I mean, good night, the book of James chapter 1 and verse 14 and 15, it says, Can God be tempted by evil? Does he tempt people with evil? No. And then it says that each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lusts and enticed or entrapped. That simply means that God could leave us to ourselves. There couldn't be a demon of temptation within a hundred miles and we can still screw things up. You know, people say it was the devil. Listen, we don't need the devil to help us out on being stupid. And by the way, doesn't that make you thankful for Jesus? The more we see of what we have done and what we are and what he has done in our lives, the more it brings us in thankfulness to him. But think about, just for a moment, if you were Satan and your job was to try to take Jesus down, what would you use? Well, Satan obviously had a lot of practice. I mean, to that point, you had had the Roman Empire was in full swing, slavery across the whole world. I mean, you had all sorts of horrific evils. You had the Greeks, that their moral corruption was so much. It's very interesting, those of you that are history buffs, the Romans hired mostly Greek tutors to teach their kids because even the New Testament talks about how the Greeks they respect wisdom and learning and education. And it was mostly those Greek tutors who corrupted the Roman youth that eventually brought down the Roman Empire. But if you were Satan, what would you use? You'd have a lot of, you had a lot of practice. You knew the Bible. You knew that God would send the Redeemer into the world. So you're ready. I mean, Satan probably knows the Bible better than us. Boom, boom, boom. You see, what did he do with Jesus? He used Scripture. That's so interesting. Notice that he did not use the Satanic Bible. Notice he didn't say, Jesus, let's draw a giant pentagram on the ground and let's try to make the blue Narnian fire of witchcraft and let's do some seances and maybe if you do that and we drink some cat's blood and we do this, then you can get the power of the dark one. No. None of that. Notice all he did was he quoted Scripture. And when he quoted Scripture, Satan was giving an indication on his most difficult, his most insidious type of attack, which is simply this. If Satan can use Scripture, if he tried to use Scripture, the Bible, to tempt Jesus then it's very possible, please hear me, church, that religious, blind pride is the most dangerous temptation of all. And that simply means us thinking that we're okay when we're really not. Didn't God say this? Jesus? I mean, can't God make bread out of, out of rocks? I mean, can't, can't God hold you up if you fall down off of this, this precipice? Won't he be able to sustain you? 
He was trying to get Jesus to use the Word of God in a self-glorifying, self-honoring way. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. This is so true. Sin is ultimately self-worship and self-adulation. You see, the hypocritical prayer, and Jesus goes on there in verse 5, that hypocrites lack the proper perspective on prayer, and the, the hypocritical prayer, listen, can be Christian in its content. We can talk about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, but it can be atheistic in its motive. I had a conversation with an atheist on Twitter this past week about that statement. And the reason here is this. If we pray in such a way to be noticed, or if we pray like the book of James says, that we ask so that we can spend it on our lusts, then it is at the core using God as some sort of a slot machine. Saying, God, here is the 50 cent piece, here is the quarter, here is the nickel of my prayers, and if I put that into your prayer hearing box, then the return will be an answer to my prayer. Now notice here, that Jesus does not condemn all public prayer. Some people have read this passage and they come to the conclusion. They say, well, I'm no longer going to pray with my Sunday school class or my small group. Or I'm no longer going to pray in church. Because Jesus said there in verse number 5 that hypocrites like to pray in public. But notice that Jesus points not to praying in public, but to the motive. The motive was to be seen by others. Jesus is not condemning prayer He's con- in public. He's condemning prayer in public that is done to get attention for ourselves. Now, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard the statement, that was a beautiful prayer. You ever heard that before? That prayer was just so pretty. It was just so beautiful. It's just like I, that prayer, it's like somebody just needs to put that onto a shawl or, or into a painting. And we just need to take that beautiful prayer and put it on a beautiful wall and we'll just say it beautifully because that was a beautiful prayer. That was a flowery prayer. Boy, how, how did that person use so many big words in that prayer? I'll tell you what. If you want somebody to pray a good prayer, that's a good prayer. Talk to him. Talk to her. Listen, I think that we should do everything in an excellent way when we do it for Jesus. Right, church? I mean, every everything. But I do have a caution that when in, in some of our church traditions it seems like we can make much out of a ritual for example here we go today is what first sunday and we're taking what the lord's supper i guarantee you you go to any church and there will be people who will get upset at how the deacons or the ushers or whoever's passing out the bread and the juice do that because they've lost sight of what it's about. Some people will get worked up. Well, does the pastor hand it to the chairman of the deacons and then the chairman of deacons hands it to the vice chairman of deacons and the vice chairman of deacons serves the deacon secretary and then the deacons serve themselves and then they serve Pastor Jeff. And it's just like by the time it's done, nobody knows what's going on. And some people, it's crazy in church. People can get worked up. I mean, seriously, I'm telling you, you pass it out, especially with the little pieces of bread that we use now. 
Y'all know where this is going. People say, I don't, I don't like that bread. It's nasty. Would you go to a restaurant that serves that? I don't think so. Carabas would have been on a business a long time ago if they had been serving that mess. And we can be so focused upon the ritual that we forget that the original Lord's Supper was a bunch of dudes with beards and sandals with robes Notice, sitting around the table, sorry germaphobes, passing around a loaf of unleavened bread, tearing it off, passing it to the next man, and then passing around a common cup with the wine. In remembrance of what Jesus has done. If the screen were up, you'd see a cross in the background. That's the point. Jesus is saying, be careful because spiritual pride can so come into your prayer life that you're thinking, wow, that was a pretty good prayer, even if I don't say so myself. And then in church, we think that good prayers are long prayers. And then when we go to lunch, we think that long prayers are from hell. Don't judge me. You've been there. Don't judge me. It's that point where everybody's ready to eat and somebody decides to recite the whole, I mean, Psalm 119 for beginning to end. The food's cold. You got the foot tapping, you know, like that as an indication to say, God knows. Let us eat. But when we, when we get into God's word, the, the prayers, that God truly hears, if you, if you have time to mark it in your Bible, Psalm 51, and, and look at that later, it is a broken and a contrite heart. A contrite heart is one that brings no excuses. It's one that comes to God in total humility and said, I'm going to leave the prepackaged prayers at the door and I'm going to come to God alone. You know, prepackaged prayers, hey, listen, if you have children, grandchildren, what an amazing thing that you can do to instill a life of prayer. You say, now, Jeff, I, I think you're going to go there. Are you going to tell me I shouldn't teach my kids and grandchildren to have bedtime prayers? Listen, I think it's good to teach your children to pray, period. But there can be the danger if you say, have you said your prayers? And the child understands that's at 8 o'clock every night. That's that's the time when we talk to God. Don't worry about the rest of the day. It's a miserable failure because we're teaching them what some of us have received by proxy, that the time that you don't lie, the time that you don't use profanity, the time that you don't talk about people behind their back is when you're quote-unquote in church. If we've been saved, we are the church. And if we are the church, we need to model to our precious children a lifestyle of a relationship with God. That's what Jesus says there at the end of, of verse number 8. He, he says that God is, notice the, the descriptor here, God is our Father. I was able to cash in some airline miles and go for a couple of days on this weekend to go visit my brand new niece. Her name is Hannah Lee, and she's three weeks old, 
And man, absolutely precious. She's, I mean, just this tiny little little ball of joy. And, and it's so amazing because um, when, when you would hold her, you would just see, have you ever seen that like with little baby that everything is perfectly proportional? You know what? And it's just awesome. Now, like there are many little human there. It's awesome. And I was spending time with her and spending time with Micah. And Micah is 19 months now. And before they would put Micah to bed, they, you know, and they would say, Micah, it's time to go to bed. And even at 19 months, he already knows how to work the system. He does. My name is not Jeff Robinson. My name is Uncle Beth, B-E-F-F. And he would, they'd say, Micah, you ready to go to bed? He would go, just like a, just like a little French actor in a foreign overact movie, he would go, Uncle Beth, Uncle Beth, hold you, hold you. Because he thought that Uncle Beth didn't know that bedtime was actually bedtime. So then when he came to Uncle Beth, Uncle Beth brought him to bedtime. And so then it was okay. And man, it's so cool. Like they, they, these guys, they have this little ritual they do. They kind of throw the little baby towel over your shoulder and they say, okay. And he lays his head down on the other one. And, uh, they say, all right, it's time to go night, night. And he, and then, then they, they, they pray for him. They pray for him. I was like, dude, if I ever get married and have kids, I want to do that to pray for him. So, I mean, he's 19 months. All he knows right now is soccer ball, which is actually gaga ball, right? I mean, that's all he knows that and to eat and, you know, be a little kid. But he's, he's learning just, just by the environment of being able to live a lifetime of prayer. And so if you do light nighttime prayers with your children, your grandchildren, you do that as kind of the icing on the cake. You know, maybe it'd be a good opportunity to say, you know, what has God taught you today? What has God shown you today? As opposed to that's when we say our prayers. Because if that's what the kids get, then it's no different than I come to church on Sunday morning from 11 to whenever we get out. And it doesn't affect the rest of the week. It's kind of like uh, when I went to Liberty a couple of months ago, they were giving, um, was there on my campus day, they said, we're going to cook omelets for everybody. And I love eggs. And Bill, self, I appreciate that dozen fresh eggs you gave me on Wednesday night. That's my love languages, about protein, that is. And so I was like, that's awesome. I'm going to go get a free omelet. And so I walked in and I'm, you know, they've got the chefs there. I mean, the, the, the frying pans already. And they said, great, would you like an omelet? I said, absolutely. And he pulls out this carton and it said liquid egg product. Not liquid eggs, which like what other form do they, you know, liquid egg product. And he pours it and it kind of, you know, if you've ever eaten those, those, quote unquote eggs and you're not I'm not sure they are eggs. They were made in the Twinkie factory. They're not real food, you know? It's there's something though. It, in the same way I, I thought, you know, what is the difference when we bring to God a prepackaged thing that we've just heard somebody at church pray to where he says, Father, you know, like fifty times in the prayer. You know what I'm talking about? You know, and he say he says God like every other word because he doesn't know how to actually communicate with the Lord. And sometimes we, we think that's the way that we're supposed to pray. And when we pray, it should be a conversation with our Heavenly Father. Prayer, there in verse 6, is simply an indication of what we think about God. Notice what he says, when, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do you realize that every moment that we take, this is one of those those small thoughts that we just don't think about, but it's so profound. Every moment that you take to pray to God, 
whether that's to express love to Him for what He has done, whether that is to pray for physical healing, whatever time you take to pray to God, it is in that moment that you are not thinking about how you can solve the problem yourself. It is every moment of prayer in your life is an act of faith saying, God, I truly believe that you're the one who can solve my problem and not human power players. Yes, we love doctors. And by the way, be as nice as you can to them because can you imagine doing that type of work day in and day out? We appreciate the advances that God has allowed in medical science. But at the end of the day, we know that God is sovereign over life and death. And when we pray, it is an acknowledgement. It is us humbling ourselves before him, saying, God, I don't have to pray in front of people. I don't have to be a quote-unquote great prayer. I don't have to know big words that are in the King James Version, a great translation of the Bible, but I can just come to you and simply be honest because, notice what Jesus says, tapping it off, uh, topping it off again, your Father sees in secret. And then in verse 8, God knows what you have need of before you even ask of it. And in verse 7, he gives a curious turn before he brings it to conclusion. Notice he said the other part. Number one, don't, don't, don't be like the religious hypocrites who pray to be noticed. Then secondly, don't be like the pagans, those who have no concept of the true biblical God because they think that they will be heard because of their much speaking. If you've been overseas, you've seen, or even here in the United States, that much of the Hindu prayers, much of the Buddhist meditations, the Islamic prayers, five times a day, if you're a good Muslim, you will stop wherever you are and you will pray five times a day. Those are, are sad attempts to try to do something to get the God or the gods or the higher power to listen The rabbis of Jesus' day actually taught whenever a prayer is long, a prayer is heard. And I think some of us think that when we come to God, it's like that. That we have to say things over and over and over again. And we say in Jesus' name at the end of our prayer. We don't just say in Jesus' name. We say in Jesus' name. And we put some gusto into it. That God's going to turn his head and say, wow, that was a fantastic prayer. I'm listening now. And it's almost like some of us think that God is some football coach telling us to do this crab walk across a cold, muddy football field and just saying, pray through, continue, go, go, go. And if you make it from the first yard line to the 100 yard line all the way at the end, then, then, then I'll hear you because you have shown that you're a serious and a good and a well-conditioned prayer. Jesus says God is not like that. Know this, that when we come to God, he knows. Some people say, well, then I don't even need to pray. If that's the attitude of our heart, may God have mercy upon us. This is not, Jesus is not giving this to say, well, God knows, so you don't have to ask. What he's saying is that God understands when we come to him with those deep needs. The pagan prayers continued over and over, like uh, the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament. Remember they were on Mount Carmel? God did that amazing uh, miracle afterwards. He came and he burned up all the sacrifices, licked up all the water so there was none left in the trenches. And then, before that, the prophets of Baal, they begin to pray to Baal. 
And the prophet of God says, is your false God asleep? Is he preoccupied with his bodily functions? It's in the text. It's the idea. He's trash-talking this false god. And then it's so amazing that Baal didn't hear, Baal didn't listen, so they begin to dance. And horror of horrors, they begin to bloodlet. They cut themselves so that this false god would hear and see their desire to have their prayers answered. God is not like that. God does not say, come to me and brutalize yourself. God says, I have sent my son Jesus who has been brutalized on your account. So finally, the last line there in your outline is that prayer is like communication between a child and his or her father. You see, a good, a good father, even if you didn't have one, we have so many people today in America that have not even known their father. Some have known their father and they wish that they did not. A good father loves his children. A good father provides for his children. A good father is interested in his children. So regardless of the dad that you have or had or did not have, you never knew him. Listen, when you come to God in prayer, when you bring those things in your life that are weights and burdens upon your shoulders, know that he, according to Jesus there in verse 8, he knows your needs. And not only does He know your needs, He truly wants to do a work in your life. So when we, man, when, I, I, I love it. When we went on the mission trip in Costa Rica, those of you that are on that team, and those of you who are here at the report back remember seeing those pictures and those videos. Then when we got off those buses, man, and we were with those kids, it's like those little kids just gravitated to us. Because they saw people that, We're willing to show them love. Oh man, may it be that we come to God. And we don't come to Him in shame. He knows. He's the one there who's able to forgive us if we have done something we should be ashamed for. But most of all, He is there for us to be honest with. And isn't it awesome with God that you can come to Him in personal, private prayer and you know that it stays there? Even those of us who have close friends, those of you that are in good godly marriages, you say, you know what? There's even some things that I struggle with internally that I think, boy, if I told my wife or my husband that, they may not leave me, but they may seriously like say, well, we need to look into getting professional help. They, they, may, they, they may not get it. They may look at me thinking, man, so, something's wrong. Something's wrong somewhere. And it's not that something's wrong. It's just that God's doing a work in my life and I want to see Him work in my family. And sometimes we have things that are so personal, we couldn't imagine sharing them with anybody. But when you come to God, He knows. And He is the great healer. He is the one who comes alongside to help us with His Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And those of you who've been around kids, you know how funny it is when kids come and they've done something wrong and they bring excuses and they tell you, no, it was not me. And you're like, so you're not the one who pulled the jar of chocolate cookies off the table and it smashed everywhere. No, it's not me. Okay, well, how do you explain the chocolate all over your face? It was not me. And they lie. Can you believe that those little angels have it in them to lie? Well, the Bible says that we're all born in sin. It's not something that we learn from society. Society can definitely affect that, but we've got it in us to be as rotten as they come. But when a little child 
comes and they lie and they lie and they lie. A good parent, a good babysitter, a good grandparent, a good friend of the family will try to lead that child to a place of acknowledging what they did wrong. Because nobody wants to say, yeah, I raised the best liar in Franklin County. Man, my kid could swindle you out of a nickel. I mean, I just can't wait to see what my kid's going to do in this life. Ah. Nobody wants to do that. We want them to come to a place of honesty and repentance. And when a child is truly repentant, when they understand what they've done wrong, they cry and they hold out their arms to you, whoever you are. It is in that moment that we see a picture of what we should be like when God is saying through the words of his, his scripture, be honest. Have you been honest with God in your prayer life? There may be some of you here today and you've never come to a place of committing your life to Jesus Christ. And today needs to be that point. You need to be saved. There may be some that have walked in disobedience and you need to ask the Lord to cleanse that. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as we come to this time of an invitation. Whatever your commitment may be today, some of you need to join the church. God has led you here. He's given you peace. You may be nervous, But he's shown you, I want you to serve here. This is going to be your faith family. Why don't you come? If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've had church involvement, yes. If you know things about the Bible, cool. But you know there's never been a time yet in your life to where you have given control of who you are to Jesus. Why don't you do that right now? Say, Jesus, save me. It's not, once again, a big flowery prayer. It is, the, it is a commitment of your heart to turn from your pride and your sin and turn solely to Jesus. Why don't you in just this moment right now give your life to him? And there may be some of us and we just need to prioritize prayer. Others of us, we have people in our lives that desperately need a touch from God. The invitation is this. For those of you that need to be saved, trust Christ. Those of you that have been saved or got saved here in this service, those who want to join the church, be baptized, we're going to ask you to come, to walk forward. And I'll just take you by the hand and pray for you quietly here. And your commitment is to say, you know what, I'm ready to join up with Jesus. I'm ready to serve here. But the rest, the invitation is open. The altar is open for you to pray. Because if you're like me, there can be seasons in your life where it seems like busyness strangles out that constant communion with God throughout the day.